Hi folks! Welcome to the Smart Ass Historian. I'm as always the great white snark Scotty J. Seated next to me is the Reverend Jeff. How's it going? Oh Lord. It's that time of year. Yeah, no shit. Well my brother and I had a Brian and I had a conversation first about how I don't know if I had this with you, but the older you get the the you know, the older your kids get, the less Christmas spirit you have. Oh, yeah. I mean, mine's pretty high right now because well, my kid's only five. So right. You know. I, I can I can see that, though. Right. And then you start, you know, identifying with Scrooge <laughs> as you get older. Well, no. I mean, just wait until. And so you're only, you're only a couple of years away from grandkids. Hopefully. So, I mean. Right. I mean, I'll get it again. Don't, don't. I'll get it again once I have grandkids. Don't despair there, Scotty J. But, uh. You're going to have grandkids before you know <laughs> My it. brother and I were talking, and we were like, you know, we kind of identify with Willie from Bad Santa. <laughs> you know, you just kind of sit there, and you're like, fuck, it's Christmas. And as we're having this conversation, his fiance, because they're engaged now, she's like, not me. I still have the Christmas spirit. And I, I, I wanted to look at her and go, did your parents not ignore you enough as a kid? Yeah. Did your parents tell you that all your dreams could come true? Yeah. Listen here, I was pretty much ignored most of my life. Do you have, do you have an extensive collection of 12th place ribbons? <laughs> you know, did, did your parents just not hug you not enough, you know? Because my parents never hugged me, so... Yeah, we weren't really no huggers either. I mean, well, it, I, I went in, I went in last week for my assessment that, for our counseling, and and I, and I've said this before. I when I was coming up in the eighties, I was part of that fucking massive divorce wave that was sweeping the country. Yeah, where the experts at the time said that kids from broken homes are more likely to do drugs and be criminals. Yeah. The latchkey kids. Yeah, that was uh Well, we had babysitters, but I mean, yeah, that was us. That was me and my sisters after and my a brother. At point, we never... Like, after, like... After I got into high school, they stopped, because Dad figured... No, I never had a... We... Unless they were going away... Right. We did... After the age of, like, 9 or 10, we never had babysitters. Dad waited until I got into high school, and then... By junior, by sophomore, junior year, they just stopped, and Dad just fucking fed us to the wolves. Don't burn the house down. Yeah, that was basically it. But you know, I the experts back then said that I should actually be dead of a drug overdose or in prison because of crime, <laughs> and I'm not. So I'm like, fuck you, you experts. Here, suck my big fucking. Yeah, gun. right. I mean, it well. In Iroquois or Donovan, where I grew up, and in St. Anne, where you grew up, uh, unless, you know, well, maybe you would have been, it would have been easier for you to find drugs, where, you know. I knew some people. I mean, <laughs> but I had no idea, if anybody had drugs, I had no idea that they had them, or anything. I, I knew some people, <laughs> but I never did them, because... That's a whole nother story, but everyone knew, hey, if we're going to do them, we're not going to do them around Scott. We 
I did this just cigarettes, you know. I mean, we did that. I couldn't even but do I that. Mean, I never even messed with marijuana or anything until what? I was like seventeen. If I even if I even 16, looked at a beer, I had my father's mother, my mother's side of the family, uh-huh. and the entire town of Saint Anne looking at me going, You wanna turn out like your father? <laughs> Shit, my stepdad used to give me drinks of his beer when I was like eight or nine years old. I He'd be like, you want a drink of my suds? And I'm like, yeah, I'll take a drink of your suds. Or I'd go up and ask him, you know. And, I couldn't do eight. I'm telling my cousins now, I, and I, I I, think I missed, I mean, I know why everyone was, like, you know, so on me about that stuff because of my father. But, yeah. But I think I missed a major yeah, I, I imagine. I but I've always been the like, I feel ro- person. And, I don't feel that I got robbed, but I missed it. And by the yeah, time I got old enough to you really didn't miss do it, anything. You, a lot of puking and hangovers. Well, okay, and I did like that in my thirties. And some, you know, in pot isn't really that big a deal no. anyway. <laughs> it's basically it's like getting drunk without the. Hangover the next morning. Okay. And you laugh a lot. Yeah. We got a good one for you today. We're going to talk about the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. All right. Now, my one of my cousins and my uncle, they had a debate about this because my, my cousin's a hippie. Oh, here we go. And they were arguing about the bombing. She didn't think it was right it. Her sister was telling me this, and I was like, you know, if I would have been there, I, I've read essays and I've read all about this thing. And, and Truman basically, and at this point, I feel bad for Truman because he had no idea these bombs were being developed. Yeah. Oh, FDR kept him out of the loop hmm. as vice president, <clears throat> which which does happen with some presidents and vice presidents. You know, I mean, they all can't be like Obama and Uncle Joe. Where they're, you know, on the same page with everything. Yeah. Some presidents and the some presidents look at the vice president like, yeah, you're just you're gonna be sitting there for four years in the uh, over there in the in the uh, corner with the dunce cap on. You, you're just gonna be around in case they need a tie in Congress. Yeah. Or if I die. Right. <laughs> if I die, then, or get impeached, then you take over. But you know. Truman, I feel bad because he had, you know, FDR dies in his fourth term. Mm-hmm. He takes office, and then the Joint Chiefs come in and go, um, Mr. President, we have this project we've been working on. Yeah. <laughs> Holy fuck! <laughs> <coughs> but it ended the war, like, oh yeah, quick, fast, and in a hurry. Well, and the thing uh, is... Because is, the war could have drudged on for, like, another year you know, there were plans. In, causing how many more lives. Right, and we talked about this in this World War II class I took at GSU. If we were prepared, if we weren't prepared to use the bomb, we were talking about a, an invasion of the island of Japan itself. Yeah. But not only would we have faced the Japanese military, we'd have been facing the civilian population as well. Oh, yeah, because they would have fought. Oh, who were prepared to fight and die for the emperor. And there would have been way more Japanese deaths. There would have been a a hell of a lot more casualties. And 
I'm sure Truman wrestled with this when he made the decision to drop the bombs. Well, with the two bombs that he dropped, those the pe- the amount of people that died were way less. Yeah, that would way less amount of that would that would right that we would have lost if we have invaded a ground war. Yeah, and I mean dropping a bomb is no easy decision to make. And I'm sure President Truman severely weighed those options. Yeah, but it had the desired effect because... Oh, it did. They don't have the technology, and them seeing the technology unleashed on them, I knew they were like, oh, that's it. We're done, we're done. (laughs) And we inadvertently caused Godzilla because of it. Yeah. Which wreaks havoc on them all the time. Right. (laughs) Okay, so the United States had developed plans for an air campaign against Japan prior to the Pacific War. The capture of Allied bases in the Western Pacific in the first weeks of the conflict meant that this offensive did not begin until mid-44, when the long-ranged Boeing B-29 Super Fortress became ready for use in combat. Uh-oh. Now, Operation Matterhorn involved India-based B-29 staging... Thorough bases are through bases around Chen, Chengdu in China to make a series of raids on strategic targets in Japan. Now, this effort failed to achieve the strategic objectives that its planners had intended, largely because of logistical problems, the bombers' mechanical difficulties, and the vulnerability of Chinese staging bases and the extreme range required to reach key Japanese cities. You gotta hate that shit, man. Oh, yeah. Now, Brigadier General Haywood S. Hansel determined that Guam, Tinian, and Saipan in the Marina Islands would better serve as B-29 bases, but at the time, they were in Japanese hands. So, strategies were shifted to accommodate the air war, and the islands were captured between June and August of forty-four. Air bases were developed and B-29 operations commenced from the Marianas in October of 44. These bases were easily resupplied by by cargo ships. Now, the 21 Bomber Command began missions against Japan on November 18, 1944. The early attempts to bomb Japan from the Marianas proved just as ineffective as the China-based B-29s had been. Hansel continued to practice the practice of conducting so-called high-altitude precision bombing aimed at key industries and transportation networks even after these tactics had not been produced acceptable results. Now, these efforts proved unsuccessful due to logistic difficulties with the remote locations, technical problems with new advanced aircraft, unfavorable weather conditions, and enemy action. Now, uh, the Operation Meeting House firebombing of Tokyo in the night of March 9th through 10th, 1945, was the single deadliest air raid in history, with a greater area of fire damage and loss of life than either of the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. (coughs) So it was drudging on and they were just... Well, yeah, I mean, like I said, had they decided to go against a land approach to Japan... It would have been too costly and too bloody, 
too you know too costly in bodies. Yeah, they just they're just like this shit's got to stop now. <laughs> so Hansel's successor, Major General Curtis LeMay, assumed command in January of '45 and initially continued to use the same precision bombing tactics with equally unsatisfactory results. The attacks initially targeted key industrial facilities, but much of Japanese manufacturing process was carried out in small workshops and private homes. Under pressure from the United States Army Air Forces, uh, their headquarters in Washington, LeMay changed tactics and decided that low-level incendiary raids against Japan's cities were the only way to destroy their production capabilities, shifting from precision bombing to area bombardment with incendiaries. <laughs> the bat bomb. You ever heard of that one? Yeah. That was cool. <laughs> now, like most strategic bombing during World War II, the aim of the air offensive against Japan was to destroy the enemy's war industries, kill or disable civilian employees of these industries, and undermine civilian morale. <laughs> We're going to make Japan howl. Now, over the next six months, the 21 Bomber Command under LeMay firebombed 67 Japanese cities. Jesus. The firebombing of Tokyo, codenamed Operation Meeting House on March 9th and 10th, killed an estimated 100,000 people and destroyed 16 square miles of the city and 267,000 buildings in a single night. Jesus. Yeah. Now, it was the deadliest bombing raid of the war at a cost of 20 B-29s shot down by flak and fighters. Now, by May, 75% of bombs dropped were incendiary designed to burn down Japan's paper cities. By mid-June, Japan's six largest cities had been devastated. The end of the fighting on Okinawa that month pro provided airfields even closer to the mainland, allowing the bombing campaign to be further escalated. Aircraft flying from Allied aircraft carriers in the Ryukyu Islands also regularly struck targets in Japan, in Japan during 45, in preparation for Operation Downfall. Firebombing switched to smaller cities with populations ranging from 60,000 to 350,000. According to Yuki Tanaka, the U.S. firebombed over 100 Japanese towns and cities. And these raids were devastating on the population. Well, as this before, Japan, uh, Japan really went, you know, built up as the, the tech empire it is now. Oh, yeah. they. You know, they were still doing traditional housing at the time. Well, yeah, they didn't, hadn't done anything of that stuff yet. Uh, that's the thing that... Like, people don't understand today, uh, like, why it was so great back after, you know, after the war, after 1945, because the rest of the world was destroyed. Yeah. So our manufacturing basically helped the Came rest of the world rebuild. Right. Because Japan, the island of Japan was fucked. Yeah. All Germany. of Europe was fucked. Germany and Europe, So yeah. we were the only superpower that, you know, could... That had, you know, we weren't attacked. We didn't have shit destroyed. So we could, like, rebuild the world. Yeah, we could and come in and rebuild and... Hi, we're we bringing you democracy. Gonna, so we had, we had shitloads of factories. And, you know, production was just crazy. That's why we, we built the country, you know, built up so quick. And we could have done... We did so much. 
And then when the rest of the the other countries of the world finally rebuilt themselves, they didn't need us anymore. Yeah. That's why our manufacturing in this country tanked. Yeah. And, you know, jobs just went to crap. It just, people don't understand that's why. We weren't going to stay the head of manufacturing forever. You know, those countries had to get back to, you know, full production themselves of doing things. Now Japan is in electronics. Mm-hmm. Germany's and, you know, auto. Yeah, and then, like, all over, you know, I mean, like, when you get the iPhone, like, we had the iPhone, of course, it's an American country, but you couldn't build that phone in this country because all the parts that come, that go into the phone are built, oh, like, all it? over the globe. There was a movie, um, Dudley Moore and and Daryl Hannah, Crazy People, I think it was. Uh-huh. Where Dudley Moore plays a an ad exec and he started telling the truth in advertising, mm-hmm. and he got locked into a mental asylum. So he had all the in the <coughs> the mental patients helping him come up with true ads. Yeah. And at the end of the movie, they did want to buy a Japanese electronic firm. And he goes, "Why the Japanese are better? Because our eyes are closer together. We can see the parts clearly. Caucasians' eyes are too wide." <laughs> <laughs> a little bit racist, but it was. But it was like nine in the nineties. Yeah, so. I think it was. I remember that movie when it came out. I think it came out. Oh, like I was in high school. I was in high school. Four or five or something, something like that. that. Yeah. Now the Japanese military was unable to stop the Allied attacks, and the country's civil defense preparations provi- proved inadequate. Japanese fighters and anti-aircraft guns had difficulty engaging bombers flying at high altitudes. From April of 45, the Japanese interceptors also had to face American fighter escorts based on Iwo Jima and Okinawa. That month, the Imperial Japanese Army Air Service and the Imperial Japanese Navy Air Service basically stopped attempting to intercept the air raids to preserve their aircraft <laughs> to counter the expected invasion. They're just like, oh, fuck it. Why bother at this point? Eh, we're going to need the planes and shit for a, a land invasion. Eh, fuck it. Now, by mid-45, the Japanese only occasionally scrambled aircraft to intercept individual B-29s, conducting reconnaissance over the country, and also to conserve the supplies of fuel. Now, in July of 45, the Japanese had 1,156,000 U.S. barrels of... Uh, Avgas stockpiled for the invasion of Japan. The jet fuel for the planes. Yeah. Now, about 604,000 U.S. barrels had been consumed in the home island area in April, May, and June of 45. While the Japanese military decided to resume attacks on Allied bombers from late June, by this time there were few two operational fighters available for this change of tactics to enter the Allied air raids. For several months, the U.S. had warned civilians of potential air raids by dropping more than 63 million leaflets across Japan. (laughs) Reminds me of the MASH episode about 5 o'clock Charlie. Yeah. Now, many Japanese cities suffered terrible damage from aerial bombings. Some were as much as 97% destroyed. LeMay thought that leaflets would increase the psychological impact of bombing 
and reduce the international stigma of area bombing cities. Even with the warnings, Japanese opposition to the war remained ineffective. In general, the Japanese regarded the leaflet messages as truthful, with many Japanese choosing to leave major cities. The leaflets caused such concern that the <coughs> government ordered the arrest of anyone caught in possession of a leaflet. Oh, shit. Leaflet texts were prepared by recent Japanese prisoners of war because they were thought to be the best choice to appeal to their compatriots. In preparation for the drumming of an atomic bomb on Hiroshima, the Oppenheimer-led scientific panel of interim committee decided against a demonstration bomb against a special leaflet warning. Those decisions were implemented because of the uncertainty of a successful detonation and also because of the wish to maximize shock in the leadership. No warning was given to Hiroshima that knew that a new and much more devastating bomb was going to be dropped. Well, no shit. Yeah, you don't want them to know about that shit until it hits. Be like, I'm going to tell you all about my secret weapon. <laughs> It'd be like, you know, Popeye's dropping a fucking chicken sandwich that makes everyone go crazy. Yeah. <laughs> I've never there, had... There, did that. Right. I never had that chicken sandwich. Me either, but I keep seeing... Uh, commercial for them saying they're bringing it back. Because them crazy fuckers want that chicken sandwich again. (laughs) And people going crazy over it just eating it and just... I do want one though because I'm like, (laughs) I want to know what the fuss is about. Right. I want to know what the... I want to know... I got Popeyes right down the street from the house. I ain't got no money to get a sandwich. (laughs) Damn! (laughs) My my money goes to gas. (laughs) Now, various sources gave conflicting information about when the last leaflets were dropped on Hiroshima prior to the bomb. Robert J. Lifton wrote that it was July 27th, and Theodore H. McNeely wrote that it was July 30th. The USAAF history noted that 11 cities were targeted with leaflets on the 27th, but Hiroshima was not one of them, and there were no leaflet leaflet sorties on July 30th. Leaflet sorties were undertaken on August 1st and August 4th. Hiroshima may have been leafleted in late July or early August, as survivor accounts talk about a delivery of leaflets a few days before the atomic bomb was dropped. Three versions were printed of a leaflet listing 11 or 12 cities targeted for firebombing, a total of 33 cities listed. With the text of the leaflet reading in Japanese, We cannot promise that only these cities will be among those attacked. (laughs) They may, they may not, we don't know. We're we're just going to spin a wheel. But Hiroshima was not on the list. Yeah. See, they're not on the list, so we're okay. Yeah. Now, the July 16th success of the Trinity test in the New Mexico desert exceeded expectations. On July 26, Allied leaders issued the Post-Dam Declaration, which outlined the terms of surrender for Japan. The declaration was presented as an ultimatum and stated that without a surrender, the Allies would attack Japan, resulting in the inevitable and complete destruction of the Japanese armed forces, just as inevitably the utter devastation of the Japanese homeland. It's like, sign it or we're going to fuck you up. Right. And they decided not to sign it, so we fucked them up. 
well, then they signed it. <laughs> well, the the atomic bomb was not mentioned in the communique. Well, no, of course not. So on July 28th, Japanese papers reported that the declaration had been rejected by the Japanese government. That afternoon, Prime Minister Suzuki Kentaro declared at a press conference that the Potsdam Declaration was no more than a rehash of the Cairo Declaration that the government intended to ignore, and the government intended to ignore it. The statement was taken by both Japanese and foreign papers as a clear rejection of the declaration. Emperor Hirohito, who was waiting for a Soviet reply to non-committal Japanese peace feelers, made no move to change the government position. We're not giving the round eyes what they want. Right. <laughs> so Japan's willingness to surrender remained uh, remained conditional on the preservation of... Now, I know I'm going to butcher this, but I have an English translation. The Kokutai, which is basically imperial institution and national policy. Assumption by the... Uh, Assumption by the Imperial Headquarters of Responsibility for Disarmament and Demobilization, no occupation of the Japanese home islands, Korea or Formosa, and a delegation of the punishment of war criminals to the Japanese government. Hmm. Basically like, you war criminal? Uh, We give you slap on hands. Now, at Potsdam, Truman agreed to a request from Winston Churchill that Britain be represented when the bomb was dropped. They want... They wanted... They want some credit. They want some credit for when the bombs dropped. It's like, see, you told me what we helped the Americans do. Well, I, I think Winston, he may or may not have known. I don't know. But I think because we were allies in Europe... Yeah. And I don't think, I think we were allied, I think there were some British in the Pacific. They just wanted to have representation. It's like you just kick someone's ass, but your little buddy's standing behind you going, Yeah, see what we did to your ass? <laughs> He's the one talking the shit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like, shut up, Britain. You don't know what you're doing. Now, William Penny and group captain Leonard Cheshire were sent to Tinian but found that LeMay would not let them accompany the mission. All they could do was send a strongly worded signal to Wilson. (laughs) (laughs) You are lucky you're not here. Now, Hiroshima was the primary target for the first atomic bombing mission on August 6th, with Kokura and Nagasaki as alternative targets. The 393rd Bombament Bombardment Squadron B-29 Enola Gay, which for a while was on display at the Air and Space Museum, Mm. named after Tibbetts' mother and piloted by Tibbetts, took off from Northfield Tinian and is about a six-hour flight time from Japan. Now, the Enola Gay was accompanied by two other B-29s, the Great Artiste, commanded by Charles Sweeney, Major Charles Sweeney, which carried instrumentation and then and a then nameless aircraft later called Necessary Evil, commanded by Captain George Marquardt, which served as photography as a photo aircraft. Yeah, we had a talk. We we had um in junior seminar we had a an article about the Enola Gay we had to read. Hmm. 
because it was like the anniversary of the bombing and they had the Enola Gay on display and it, there was a lot of controversy around it. Huh. Now, after leaving Tinian, the aircraft made made their way separately to, to, to Iwo Jima to rendezvous with Sweeney and Mark Quad at 5.55, at 0.555 at 9,200 9, feet and set course for Japan. The aircraft arrived over the target in clear visibility at 31,060 feet. Now, Parsons, who was in command of the mission, armed a bomb in flight to minimize the risk during takeoff. He had witnessed four B-29s crash and burn at takeoff and feared that a nuclear explosion would occur if a B-29 crashed with an armed little boy on board. Mm. His assistant, 2nd Lieutenant Morris R. Jepson, removed the safety devices 30 minutes before reaching the target area. Now, during the night of August 5th through the 6th, Japanese early warning radar detected the approach of numerous American aircraft headed for the southern part of Japan. Radar detected 65 bombers headed for Saga, 102 bound for Meibashi, 261 en route to Nishinoma, Nishi, fuck it, I ain't gonna try that one. One hundred and eleven headed for Ub and sixty six bound for Imabari. An alert was given and radio broadcasting stopped in many cities, among them Hiroshima. Now the all clear was sounded in Hiroshima at five minutes after midnight. About an hour before the bombing, the air raid alert was sounded again as straight flush flew over the city. It broadcast a short message which was picked up by the Enola Gay. It read, Cloud cover less than three-tenths of an inch at all altitudes. Advice, bomb primary. (laughs) The all clear was sounded again over Hiroshima at 7.09 in the morning. At 8.09, Tibbet started his bomb run and handed control over to his bombardier, Major Thomas Furby. The release at 8.15 went as planned, and the little boy containing about 600 or about 64 kilotons of uranium-235 took 44.4 seconds to fall from the aircraft flying at about 31,000 feet to a detonation height of about 1,900 feet above the city. <clears throat> Now, the Enola Gay had traveled 11.5 miles before it felt the shockwaves from the blast. Wow. Yeah, 11 miles out and they felt the, felt the shockwave. Now, due to crosswinds, the bomb missed the aiming point at the AOI bridge by approximately 800 feet. That's not bad. And detonated directly over Shima Surgical Clinic. Oops. Wow. It released the equivalent of 16 kilotons of TNT, and the weapon was considered very ineffective with only 1.7% of its material fissioning. The radius of total destruction was about one mile, with resulting fires across 4.4 square miles. Now, the Enola Gay had stayed over the target area for two minutes and was 10 miles away when the bomb detonated. 
Only Tibbetts, Parson, and Furby knew of the nature of the weapon. The others on the bomber were told only to expect only to expect a blinding flash and given black goggles. It was hard to believe what we saw, Tibbetts told reporters, while Parson said the whole thing was tremendous and awe-inspiring. The men on board with me gasped, my God. He and Tibbetts compared the shockwave to a close burst of ak fire. Hmm. Now, people on the ground reported a brilliant flash of light followed by a loud booming sound. Some 70,000 to 80,000 people, around 30% of the population of Hiroshima at the time, were killed by the blast and the resultant firestorm, and another 70,000 were injured. It's estimated that as many as 20,000 Japanese military personnel were killed. U.S. surveys estimated that 4.7 square miles of the city was destroyed. Japanese officials determined that 69% of Hiroshima's buildings were destroyed and another 6-7% damaged. I remember seeing pictures from the museum. I think my sister went there. Um, there's a, a picture of like a, a staircase from like a, a courthouse building or something. Mm-hmm. And there's a guy's shadow seared into yeah, the... Yeah, I've seen those. Yeah. And I just saw one recently of like an above shot before and after. Yeah. Like an aerial photograph of the ground. And like you could see the roads and stuff and everything. And the buildings and all that shit. And then after, there's just, like, nothing. Yeah. And, like, you could barely see where the roads were. And right. It's really, screw- it's, like, weird. Like, the the ground was just, like, swept clean. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> now, some of the reinforced concrete buildings in Hiroshima had been very strongly constructed because of the earthquake danger in Japan, and their framework did not collapse even though they were fairly close to the blast center. Since the bomb detonated in the air, the blast was directed more downward than sideways, which was largely responsible for the survival of the Prefectural Industrial Promotion Hall, now commonly known as the uh, Jinbaku Dome. This building was designed and built by the Czech architect Jan Letzel and was only 150 meters from ground zero. The ruin was named Hiroshima Peace Memorial and was made a UN, UNESCO World Heritage Site in 96 over the objections of the United States and China, which expressed reservations on the ground that other Asian nations were the only ones who suffered the greatest loss of life and property, and the focus on Japanese lacked historical perspective. The bombing started intense fires that spread rapidly through timber and paper homes, burning everything in a radius of a mile, 1.2 miles, as in other Japanese cities, the fire breaks proved ineffective. Now, the air raid warning had been cleared at 731, and many people were outside going about their activities. Yeah. Ezio Nomura was the closest known survivor being in the basement of a reinforced concrete building. Now, it remained as the rest house after the war and was only 170 meters from ground zero at the time of the attack. Oh, wow. Yeah. He died in 1982 at the age of 84. Wow. 
Yeah, he was only like 560 feet. Yeah. From ground zero, and he survived. That's crazy. I would have came up like Bugs Bunny, like, what the hell? Yeah. Or no, that Tom and Jerry cartoon. See, Don't that's why it was you so believe it. That's why it was so important for them to get people out doing their main, you know, their regular business. Now, Akiko Takakura was among the closest survivors to the hypocenter of the blast. She was in the solidly built bank of Hiroshima, only 300 meters from ground zero at the time of the attack. She was 980 feet away in a bank and survived. Now, for decades, the Hiroshima strike photo was misidentified as the mushroom cloud of the bomb that formed at 816. However, due to its much greater height, the scene was identified by a researcher in March 2016 as the firestorm cloud that engulfed the city. A fire that reached its peak intensity some three hours after the bomb. Over 90% of the doctors and 93% of the nurses in Hiroshima were killed or injured. Most had been in the downtown area which received the greatest damage. The hospitals were destroyed or heavily damaged. Only one doctor, Terufumi Sasaki, remained on duty at the Red Cross Hospital. Nonetheless, by early afternoon, the police and volunteers had established evacuation centers at hospitals, schools, and tram stations, and a morgue was established in the Asano Library. Hmm. Now, most elements of the Japanese 2nd General Army Headquarters were underground, were undergoing physical training on the grounds of Hiroshima Castle, barely 900 yards from the Hypo Center. The attack killed 3,243 troops on the parade ground. The communications room from Chugoku Military District Headquarters was responsible for issuing and lifting the air raid warnings was located in a semi-basement in the castle. Yoshi Oka, uh, Hijami Girls School High... uh, Hijami Girls High School student. I was just picturing the uh, girls' school uniform. Oh, Jesus. Who had been mobilized to serve as a communications officer had just sent the message that the alarm had been issued for Hiroshima and neighboring Yamaguchi when the bomb exploded. Now, she used a special phone to inform Fukuyama headquarters that Hiroshima has been attacked by a new type of bomb. The city is in a state of near total destruction. I'm picturing kind of like Fook You and Fook Me from Austin yeah. Powers. I wonder what they would have I mean, like hearing that over the radio. They're like, you got to be kidding me. Right. They're all like, full destruction of the city. They're like, no way. Right, because, you know. They're like, no way. And then they're like, they got to see it. How, how, can, how can we be attacked by a new type of weapon? Yeah, new type of weapon. What kind of new type of weapon? Oh, that is bullshit. They probably didn't believe it. Why? They probably didn't believe it until they saw it. for themselves. And then they were like. Holy shit. (laughs) Now, since Mayor Sinkichi Awa, since uh, the mayor had been killed while eating breakfast with his son and granddaughter at the mayoral (laughs) residence, Field Marshal Shinroku Hada was only slightly wounded, so he took over the administration of the city and coordinated relief efforts. 
Many of his staff have been killed or fatally wounded, including a Korean prince of the Joseon dynasty, Yi Yu, who was serving as a lieutenant colonel in the Japanese army. Hata's senior surviving staff officer was the wounded colonel Kumao Emoto, who acted as his chief of staff. Soldiers from the undamaged Hiroshima Harbor used Shinyo-class suicide motor, motor boats intended to repel the American invasion to collect the wounded and take them down to the rivers to the military hospitals at Ujina. Now, trucks and trains... and get that up here. Trucks and trains were brought in or they brought in relief supplies and evacuated survivors from the city. Twelve American airmen were imprisoned at the Chigoku Military Police Headquarters, which was about 1,300 feet from the hypo center of the blast. Oh, shit. Most died instantly, although two were reported to have been executed by their captors, and two prisoners badly injured by the bombing were left next to the AOE Bridge by the Kenpai the Kempi Tai, where they were stoned to death. Oh, shit. Eight U.S. prisoners of war were killed as part of the medical experiment program at Kyushu University were falsely reported by Japanese <clears throat> authorities as having been killed by the atomic blast as part of an attempted cover-up. <clears throat> so after the bombing of Hiroshima, Truman issued a statement announcing the use of the new weapon. He stated, we may be grateful to Providence that the German atomic bomb project had failed and that the United States and its ad allies had spent $2 billion on the greatest scientific gamble in history and won. Hmm. Part of that was built up here in Chicago. Yeah. Yeah, the lab was under the football field at a school. Oppenheimer didn't see it that way. <laughs> no. <laughs> he opened Pandora's box. Yeah, so. big time. Now, Truman then warned Japan, if they do not now accept our terms, they may expect a rain of ruin from the air, the like of which has never been seen on this earth. Behind this air attack will follow sea and land forces in such numbers and power as they have not seen and with the fighting skill of which they are already well aware. This was, widely broadcast, this was a widely broadcast speech and was picked up by the Japanese news agencies. Okay, so get, we haven't dropped the Nagasaki bomb yet. No. Now, the responsibility for the timing of the second bombing was delegated to Tibbets. Scheduled for August 11th against Kokura, the raid was moved earlier by two days to avoid a five-day period of bad weather forecast to begin on August 10th. Three Bomb pre-assemblies had been transported to Tinian labeled F-31, F-32, and F-33 on their exteriors. On August 8th, a dress rehearsal was conducted off Tinian by Sweeney using Boxcar as the drop plane. Now, assembly F-33 was expended testing the components and F-31 was designated for the August 9th mission. At 3.49 on the morning of August 9, 1945, Boxcar, flown by Sweeney's crew, carried Fat Man, with Kokura as the primary target and Nagasaki as the secondary target. 
Now, the mission plan for the second attack was nearly identical to that of Hiroshima, with two B-29s flying an hour ahead as weather scouts and two additional B-29s for instrumentation and photographic support for the mission. Sweeney took off with his weapon already armed, but with electrical safety plugs still engaged. So basically, the Japanese are all like, eh, new weapon, whatever, this guy said that. And then Truman, you know, said what he said. And they were like, eh, screw you. Well, I mean, they saw the devastation from Hiroshima, but they could have thought it was propaganda, too. Oh, yeah, you that's know? possible. Or luck or whatever, you know, like, oh, you did it, did it once. Right. They oh, can't they, do it again. They can't do it again. They don't have the, you know, yeah. they're, they're lying to us. They don't have a weapon. Yeah, first time it's luck. Right. You know, the second time it's like, oh, shit, it's skill. <laughs> so during pre-flight inspection of Boxcar, the flight engineer notified Sweeney that an operative fuel transfer pump made it impossible to use 640 gallons of fuel carried in a reserve tank. This fuel would still have to be carried all the way to Japan and back, consuming still more fuel. Replacing the pump would take hours, moving the fat man to another aircraft might take just as long, and it was dangerous as well since the bomb was live. Yeah. Tibbetts and Sweeney therefore elected to, to have Boxcar continue the mission. This time... Penny, uh, Penny and Cheshire were allowed to accompany the mission, flying as observers on the third plane, Big Stink, flown by the, the group's operations officer, Major James I. Hopkins, Jr. Now, observer, observers aboard the weather planes reported that both targets clear. When Sweeney's aircraft arrived at the assembly point for his flight off the coast of Japan, Big Stink failed to make the rendezvous. Mm. According to Cheshire, Hopkins was at varying heights, including 9,000 feet higher than he should have been, and was not flying tight circles over Yakushima, as previously agreed with Sweeney and Captain Frederick Brock. Now, Brock was piloting the support B-29, the Great Artiste. I love the names of the planes. Yeah. Instead, Hopkins was flying 40 miles dogleg patterns. Though ordered not to circle longer than 15 minutes, Sweeney continued to wait for Big Stink for 40 minutes. <laughs> Before leaving the rendezvous point, Sweeney consulted Ashworth, who was in charge of the bomb, as commander of the aircraft. Sweeney made the choice to proceed to the primary, the city of Cobra. So... Now... After exceeding the original departure time limit by nearly a half hour, Boxcar, accompanied, the great, accompanied by the great artiste, proceeded to Kokura, which was 30 minutes away. Now, the delay at the rendezvous had resulted in clouds and drifting smoke over Kokura from fires started by a major firebombing fire bombing raid by 224 B-29s on nearby Yahada the previous day. Additionally, the Yahada Steelworks intentionally burned coal tar to produce black smoke. Now, the clouds of smoke resulted in the 70% of the area over Kokura being covered, obscuring the aiming point. Now, three bomb runs were made over the next 50 minutes, burning fuel and exposing the aircraft repeatedly 
to heavy defenses around Kokura, but the bombardier was unable to drop visually. By the time of the third bomb run, Japanese anti-aircraft fire was getting closer, and 2nd Lieutenant Jacob Besser, who was monitoring Japanese communications, reported activity on the Japanese fighter direction radio bands. So after three runs over the city with fuel running low because of the failed fuel pump, Boxcar and the Great Artiste headed for their secondary target, Nagasaki. Hmm. Fuel consumption calculations made en route indicated that Boxcar had insufficient fuel to reach Iwo Jima and would be forced to divert to Okinawa, which had become entirely Allied-occupied territory only six weeks earlier. So after initially deciding that if Nagasaki were obscured on their arrival, the crew would carry the bomb to Okinawa and dispose of it in the ocean if necessary. Ashward agreed with Sweeney's suggestion that a radar approach would be used if the target was obscured. About 7.50 Japanese time, an air raid alert was sounded in Nagasaki, but the all-clear signal was given at 8.30. (laughs) When only two B-29 superfortresses were sighted at 10.53, the Japanese apparently assumed that the planes were only on recon, and no further alarm was given. Uh Uh-oh. So a few minutes later at 11 o'clock, the great artiste dropped instruments attached to three parachutes. These instruments also contained an unsigned letter to Professor Ryokichi Sagane, a physicist at the University of Tokyo who studied with three of the scientists responsible for the atomic bomb at the University of California, Berkeley, urging him to tell the public about the danger involved with these weapons of mass destruction. Oh, shit. The messages were found by military authorities, but not turned over to Sagain until a month later. Oh. <laughs> In 1949, one of the authors of the letter, Luis Alvarez, met with Sagain and signed the letter. At 11.01, a last-minute break in the clouds over Nagasaki allowed Boscar's bombardier, Captain Kermit Behan to visually sight the target as ordered. The Fat Man weapon, containing a core of about 5 kilograms of plutonium, was dropped over the city's industrial valley. It exploded exploded 47 seconds later at 1,650 plus 33 feet above a tennis court Halfway between the Mitsubishi Steel and Arms Works in the south and the Nagasaki Arsenal in the north. This was nearly three kilometers northwest of the planned hypocenter, and the blast was confined to the Urakami Valley, and a major portion of the city was protected by intervening hills. Huh. The resulting explosion released the equivalent energy of 21 plus 2 kilotons of energy. Now Big Stink was spotted or sorry, Big Stink spotted the explosion from a hundred miles away and flew over to observe. Did they say anything about a shirtless man with claws and a Japanese soldier surviving the blast? No. By hiding in a hole? No. No. Damn it. <laughs> 
Now, Yurikami Tenshudo, uh, destroyed by the bomb, the dome bell of the church having... Oh, sorry. It was a picture of a church. Mm. It was a Catholic church in the city that got destroyed. Now, Boxcar flew on to Okinawa after arriving with only sufficient fuel for a single approach. Sweeney tried repeatedly to contact the control tower for landing clearance, but received no answer. He could see heavy air traffic landing and taking off from Yonten Airfield. Now, firing off every flare on board to alert the field to his emergency landing, the boxcar came in fast, landing at 140 miles per hour instead of the normal 120 miles per hour. The number two engine died from fuel starvation as it began the final approach. Mm. Touching down just in time. Just in time, man. Now touching down on only three engines midway down the landing strip, Boxcar bounced up into the air again for about twenty-five feet before slamming back down hard. Oh man. I would have hate to have been on that on that. Yeah. But like that's gonna pucker your butthole. <laughs> <laughs> Boom! Oh, fuck. Oh, Everybody clench! <laughs> Tuck your head between your legs and kiss your ass goodbye! Good thing they didn't have the weapon on board. Right. Now, the heavy B-29 slewed left towards a row of parked B-24 bombers before the pilots managed to regain control. Oh, shit. I've had I've played airplane games. Mm-hmm. I've had land things like that. Oh yeah. Hey, any landing you can walk away from. Yeah. Its re- reversible propellers were insufficient to slow the aircraft adequately, with both pilots standing on the brakes. Boxcar made a swerving ninety-degree turn at the end of the runway to avoid running off it. A second engine died from fuel exhaustion before the plane came to a stop. Mm. <clears throat> you know, they, those guys had to look like Robert Hayes in the airplane with just sweat just running down there. <laughs> now, following the mission, there was confusion over the identification of the plane. The first eyewitness account by war correspondent <laughs> William L. Lawrence of the New York Times, who accompanied the mission aboard the aircraft piloted by Bach, reported that Sweeney was leading the mission in the Great Artiste. He also noted its victor as number 77, which was that of Boxcar. Lawrence had interviewed Sweeney and his crew and was aware that they referred to the plane as the Great Artiste. Except for Enola Gay, none of the 393rds B-29s had yet had names painted on the nose, a fact which Lawrence himself noted in his account. Unaware of the switch in aircraft, Lawrence assumed Victor 77 was the great artiste, which was in fact Victor 89. Hmm. Now, although the bomb was more powerful than the one used on Hiroshima, its effects were confined by hillsides to the narrow Urakami Valley. Of 7,500 Japanese employees who worked inside the Mitsubishi munitions plant, including mobilized students and regular workers, 6,200 were killed. Some 17,000 to 22,000 others who worked in other war plants and factories in the city died as well. Mm. 
Casualty estimates for immediate deaths vary widely, ranging from 22,000 to 75,000. At least 35 to 40,000 people were killed and 60,000 others injured. In the days and months following the explosion, more people died from the injuries. Now, because of the presence of undocumented foreign workers and a number of military personnel in transit, there are great discrepancies in the estimates of total deaths by the end of 1945. A range of 39,000 to 80,000 people can be found in various studies. Now, unlike Hiroshima's military death toll, only 150 Japanese soldiers were killed instantly, including 36 from the 140th AAA Regiment of the 4th AAA Division. Sounds like a baseball yeah. <laughs> baseball camp, you know. We got some AAA players here. Uh, at least eight Allied prisoners of war died from the bombing, and as many as 13 may have died. Eight confirmed deaths include British POW, Royal Air Force Corporal Ronald Shaw, and seven Dutch POWs. The freaking duck. Dutch One American POW, Joe Kiyumiya, was in Nagasaki at the time of the bombing, but survived, reportedly having been shielded from the effects of the bomb by concrete walls of a cell. Hmm. And a hairy Canadian with claws. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Big piece of steel and a shirtless Canadian with claws. Who healed quickly. Or American or whatever you want to uh, call can, By he, then. Well, he, I don't know. Canadian, but I mean, who? at that point he could have been anybody. Now, there were 24 Australian POWs in Nagasaki, all whom survived. Because they're like, you call that a bomb? Yeah. <laughs> I'll show you a bomb, mate. <laughs> they're all probably plastered, too. Now, partially in, a partially incinerate, incinerated child in Nagasaki... Oh, sorry. Uh, the radius of total destruction was about one mile, followed by fires across the northern portion of the city to two miles south of the bomb. About 58% of the Mitsubishi arms plant was damaged and about 78% of the Mitsubishi steelworks. The Mitsubishi electrical, electric works suffered only 10% structural damage as it was on the border of the main destruction zone. <laughs> After that, they went into automobile manufacturing. Oh, yeah. Now, the Nagasaki arsenal was destroyed in the blast, and although many fires likewise burnt following the bombing, in contrast to Hiroshima, where sufficient fuel density was available, no firestorm developed in Nagasaki as the damaged areas did not furnish enough fuel to generate the phenomenon. Instead, the ambient wind at the time pushed the fire spread along the valley. As in Hiroshima, the bombing badly dislocated the city's medical facilities. A makeshift hospital was established at the Shinkozen Primary School, which served as the main medical center. The trains were still running and evacuated many victims to hospitals in nearby towns. A medical team from a naval hospital reached the city in the evening, and firefighting brigades from the neighboring towns assisted in fighting the fires. 
Takashi Nagai was a doctor working in the radiology department of Nagasaki Medical College Hospital. He received a serious injury that severed his right temporal artery, but joined the rest of the surviving medical staff in treating bomb victims. Hmm. And that is the resulting fireworks. And because well. and because of those two bombings, it pushed the Japanese to surrender. Yep. Which they did on board the Missouri. Yep, which is still in Hawaii. The Missouri? Is it? I think. I, it was, I think it's still in Missouri, uh, Hawaii, isn't it? Pretty sure. Um. Anchored there as a museum. Yeah, I know it's a museum. And, well, I know it's a museum, and I know there's a plaque. Um, God, I can't even type today. Yeah, I'm thinking it's in Pearl Harbor. Um, I know. It could be in Pearl Harbor. It could be in uh, California. I'll find out where it's at here in a moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, looking it up on your phone. Yeah, I'm looking it up on my phone. So I know there's a plaque on the deck. Yeah, it's in it's in Pearl Harbor. Yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah, it's <coughs> it's there. It's in Pearl Harbor. Uh, there's a plaque on the deck where the the signing the took desk place. Was and they signed. I don't. Everything. Yeah, well, yeah. There, I remember seeing pictures of the. I remember seeing pictures of the plaque too, but. No, not the plaque. Oh, of the, the sign they signed, yeah. Yeah. They had like a desk and everything or something. Or a table, like a table or something. Yeah, they were at a table, but, you know, there was, um... You know, there, there's a plaque now to commemorate the spot, and, you know, there's the famous picture of, I think, Douglas MacArthur was there at the signing. And the Japanese delegation. Mm-hmm. So, and she's a museum now. She's one of a few other uh, World War II era battleships that were decommissioned and turned into museums. Yeah. Like the Hornet's one. Um, I know the Hornet. And I think the Hornet's in Texas. I've never heard of the Hornet. And the Horn- I think the Hornet did World War II in Korea. Might have made it to Nam. But that one's decommissioned too. But yeah, if I ever make it out to Hawaii, I'm not taking a boat because I don't trust boats. <laughs> they got this bad habit of sinking, yeah, or catching on fire, or everyone getting food poisoning. Do you trust planes? More I trust that? planes because in a plane, I can get seated next to a priest. Yeah. If we start going down, I can do a quick confession. <laughs> if he speaks English, I don't care. Well, when I flew back from Philly with Phil, I was seated next to a priest going back to Chicago. And I was like, great, if we go down, I have someone to confess to. <laughs> of course, they made the mistake of sitting Phil next to a woman. So, you know, oh, you know what he was trying to do the whole flight. Oh, yeah, trying to mile high club it. 
Phil couldn't even get in the mile ahead club. <laughs> or the mile behind club. Well, the mile ahead club, Ron White came yeah. up with, you know, have sex behind a Cracker Barrel billboard. But that's got to be low on the ground because a lot of them fuckers are up on poles. <laughs> hey, babe, you want to climb up this pole and have sex? But, no, we're going to wrap this one up. Uh, if you're looking for us, we're on Anchor, all major podcasting apps, and Apple Podcasts. You know what I forgot to say on the last one? Brian to do his job. Yeah, for Brian to do his job. I forgot about that. So, yeah, with Brian, do your job. Uh, we've got the Facebook page. Just join us there. For the Smartass Historian, I am Scotty J. I'm Jeff. Catch you later, folks. Bye.